All right, well, good afternoon. Uh, if you haven't met me, my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the leaders here at church, and uh, it's great to be, um, to be going through this final week of Corinthians. We've made it through 19 weeks of Corinthians. Yeah, I reckon. That's, a, that's about a third of the year where we've been moving through this one book, and we've covered everything from humility, not judging others, to church discipline, to singleness, to sexuality, to masculinity and femininity, to spiritual gifts to the resurrection, and now finally we come to the last week, and Paul, the author of this letter, is addressing one more thing, and it's concerning this collection or this giving that they're going to do. And so we are going to be talking about money this afternoon. And you might be thinking, oh gosh, why, on a long weekend of all times, right? But I, I think that God's word on money and finances is, is unique, that there is no worldview that sees money in the same way that he does, or that God does. And if you are here and just visiting for this week or even just finding out about who Jesus is or even a little skeptical, don't stress. We're not going to ask you for money at City Light. We believe that it's the membership of the church that give. So we don't do offerings where we're trying to get anyone to give. But I think it should be a good time for you to see what the Christian view of money is. Because if there's anything that reveals a worldview, it's how you understand money and finances and the people around you, isn't it? Now really, if there's any worldview that has any truth to it, it's going to impact here probably first out of anywhere in life. Because it is the case that I would say if you asked around, if you asked the average person on the street, even just walking by this church, I think most people would say that they think the world would be a better place if we were all more generous. The problem is why doesn't that happen? If really most people, unless I'm naive on that, if really most people think that the best thing would be for all of us to be more generous, why isn't it the case? It reminds me of a game we used to play. I used to teach uh, scripture in high schools, which is, you know, quite the challenge. And because I had a teaching background, I'd always be given the classes that were kind of most difficult to handle. And, um, but we used to play a game that every time we played it, it went off. And it was kind of called either the M&M game or the Sin game, however you wanted to, uh, to say it. But, um, but basically, the way it worked was this. The reward was M&Ms. And you would think... Like, high school students would be way too whatever to be all about that. They're not. They were absolutely greedy for it. I even, in one class, I had a fight break out between, like, two of the toughest students because of how they divide up the M&Ms at the end of the lesson. And we're talking about, like, 40 M&Ms, right? It's not even a packet. So, for some reason, they were just sick for it. But anyway, we used to play this game, and the idea was to get as many M&Ms as you could. <clears throat> and um, the way you did it was, you divided the class up into teams, probably four or five teams, and each team got two tokens, so they got a green one and a red one. And what you'd say is every single round, you send one delegate up, and they're going to reveal one token. You can't take two up, you've got to take one up. <clears throat> and, um, and the deal was this, if everybody brought green tokens, everybody gets M&Ms. If one person brings a red token, the greens get nothing, and the red token gets everything. <coughs> Sorry, I might need a drink. Cobber, do you mind just grabbing me a water, mate? <clears throat> anyway, if three people bring red tokens, the reds get, them, uh, get the M&Ms, the green gets nothing, and so on and so forth, right? So basically, the way it starts is, all the teams, it's like Survivor, they all go around and negotiate and say, like, yeah, let's do the best thing for everyone, and da, da. And the first couple of rounds, it sometimes happens. Thanks so much. Um, the first couple of rounds, it kind of happens. But, um, but eventually... Somebody does the dog act. And once they do, it's on for young and old. Once somebody betrays the trust, everyone's like, it's game on. And what the, the, the rule that kind of 
I guess, underpins the whole game is that it's fine if you bring a red token, you get it all, that sort of thing. But if everybody brings a red token, you lose all your M&Ms from every single round. And it doesn't matter how many times you play this game or how many times they have played it, it always ends up the same. Everyone always gets zeroed. They just can't help themselves. People get greedy and then it all comes unstuck. Now you might think, well, look, that's, that's M&Ms. That's not really typical of life. But I wonder, is that really the case? Robert Kudner wrote a book called Everything for Sale where he was talking about life in a kind of a capitalist environment where everything is for sale. And he says this, says, the person who volunteers time, who helps a stranger, who agrees to work for a modest wage out of commitment to the public good, who desists from littering when no one is looking, begins to feel like a sucker. He's saying in a culture where everything's for sale and, and really where the, the main way of operating is to say, how can I get as much for me whilst giving as little? Anyone who kind of volunteers or gives things away freely or acts generously starts to feel like I'm a sucker. No one else is doing this. Why would I do this? And that's what kills generosity. The motivation to give and to be generous has to be more significant than just the common good. Wouldn't it be great if we all kind of put together and and made it a better place? The motivation has to be stronger than that. It has to be strong enough to say, even if nobody else does it, I will still do it. Even if everyone else were not doing it and getting away with it, I would still do it. And the Bible grants this kind of motivation. Because the motivation for generosity in the Scriptures is not that wouldn't it be better for everyone. The motivation is, if you give generously, you enjoy the very thing that God enjoys. That the actual act of generosity, regardless of whatever else is happening around you, is the joy and the reward. And if you understand the Gospel rightly, you will understand that the heart of the Gospel is a self-giving and generous God. That the motivation for the Christian is not out of duty, not out of moral superiority, not out of even the common good, but the sheer joy of giving in the manner in which God gives. And so I'm going to pray that as we look at his word in Corinthians, uh, that that's what he'd be revealing to us. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you that you are a generous God and that you give generously and lavishly. You poured out the blood of your son Christ that we might find forgiveness and renewal and adoption. And we pray that as we study your word, that you would move our hearts by your spirit to be generous people. And we pray this for the glory of your name. Amen. We're looking at 1 Corinthians. We come to the end of this letter, and it's chapter 16, and Paul's been working through a bunch of issues. Uh, If you don't know much about this letter, it's written by a guy called Paul, who was a church planner. And he started in Jerusalem, kind of moved his way around through Turkey, made his way through Macedonia and down to the bottom of Greece to an area called Corinth, plants a church there, moves back to the other churches to check out how they're going, and he gets a letter uh, from Corinth, and the people back at the church are saying, everything's gone belly up here. They're writing to him, and they've written a whole bunch of issues, and they're like, what do we do about this stuff? And basically, the letter has been Paul just working through these issues. And so we finally come to this last one in 1 Corinthians 16, 1-4, where Paul writes this, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. 
He starts with now concerning, which is a phrase that he's used five times in this letter already. And all it means is they've obviously written a very specific question about a very specific issue. And he's, he's saying to them, well, now concerning what you asked me about, whatever it is. And on this one he's saying, now concerning the collection for the saints. So they've written to him asking about this collection. Now this, this collection comes up a few times in different letters that Paul has written, in Romans, in Galatians. It also comes up in the book of Acts, which documents the life of the early church. And it was a collection that all these kind of non-Jewish churches were putting together for the Jewish church in Jerusalem. And people have kind of speculated about what this giving was for. There's a bit of debate of it. Some would say it's regarding poverty. That um, the church, we know, was incredibly generous in the book of Acts. And so a lot of poor and needy were being drawn to the church because people were just selling their property and giving stuff away. And so some have thought, well, maybe there, there are so many poor now part of that church that they actually need someone else to kind of help out. Others have uh, speculated that uh, many sort of uh, Christian Jews thought that Jerusalem would be the site of the resurrection at the end of life. And so they've kind of migrate back there at the end of their life. So it's become this giant Jewish retirement village and, uh, and there's a lot of old people who need sort of care and support. Uh, others uh, have kind of speculated that maybe it's because of the persecution in Jerusalem. The first church to be persecuted was the church in Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified, where he was, his people witnessed his resurrection. That's where the church blew up. But the persecution broke out soon after and caused the gospel to spread out throughout that region, throughout Judea, Samaria, and you know, the rest of the earth. Um, and so some are thinking, well, look, maybe uh, this church has been, like their property has been vandalized. There are a lot of families where the, the dad has been arrested and put in jail. They have no income, uh, whatever it is. But the most likely thing is, in AD 46, and that would match up with the timing of this letter, there was a massive drought in the East Mediterranean. And so it's probably the case that the church in Jerusalem, like many others in that area, would have been hammered by drought. That they're starving and they need help. And so the churches now are putting this collection together to send there for the relief of the saints. And so Paul says, look, I'm, I'm going to come and collect this. It's going to be a while from now. And so he gives them a couple of principles about their giving. The first one is this. He says to give regularly. So he says you set something aside every week. He doesn't want to do some spontaneous, emotional kind of giving thing. He's like, look, I'm going to be there in a while. I don't want to do this big rally when I get there. Just regularly give. The second principle he says is to give on the first day of the week. For the Jewish people, the time when they gathered together was on a Saturday. That was the last day of the week. The, the day they had synagogue was on a Saturday. But Christians started meeting on a Sunday because that was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And so in honor of that, they gather on a Sunday. And the reason that we still gather on a Sunday is kind of honoring that tradition, a 2,000-year-old tradition. But Paul is saying here, set aside something on the first day of the week. The idea is that they're setting aside their money before they've spent everything. It's not kind of the leftovers. The principle in the Old Testament for giving for God's people was that they were to give out of the first fruits. God's people in the Old Testament, not the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, before Jesus were commanded to give 10% of their income. They gave it away to the ministry of the priests. Along with a bunch of other festivals, it kind of ended up being about a quarter of their total income. Um, but they were commanded to do this out of the first fruits. And it's a kind of an agricultural metaphor. The idea is when you, when you sow a harvest, the first crops that come up are the best. 
Not the ones at the end of the season, kind of left over, half-eaten by fruit... Oh, not that I would have had fruit flies in the ancient East, but whatever. Um, but, uh, yeah, anyway. Um, but um, you give out of the first fruits, right? And so the principle is rather than giving leftovers, you give out of the first fruits. It's the case even today, isn't it? If you were invited to someone's house for dinner, you would generally expect, unless it was the kind of thing where they're a really good friend and you just popped over out of the blue, you would generally expect if you were invited over for dinner that you wouldn't get there and they're like, oh, yeah, well, look, um, we've got some, like, like, a leftover bit of pizza, some pancakes and, you know, some chips and a steak or something like that. Like, um, just, you know, just get whatever you need sort of thing, right? If you were to do that, you'd be like, oh, I get it, right? We're not friends. Okay, I understand now. You, when someone comes over, you, in, in order to honor your guests, you actually put on something pretty decent. You don't give leftovers, and Paul is saying here, for this collection for the saints in Jerusalem, he's like, don't just work, don't just give out of what's left. He's saying, give out of the first fruits. Set something aside on the first day of the week, every day until I get there, so that you can be deliberate about what you're giving. But the third one, the third principle that he gives, he says, as you may prosper. It's an acknowledgement that people have different means in the church. Some will have plenty, some have just a little, and he doesn't give any set amount. And then say, you know what, if you're really faithful, you would give this amount. I remember a friend telling me of, of a church in another country uh, that he went to where uh, the way they uh, did giving was they would see which small group, which Bible study gave the most money. And at the end of the term, there'd be a little kind of ceremony. And they would, I'm not kidding, this really happened. They would give them a trophy for giving the most amount. And we were talking about this because he was stressed going back to this church. He's like, it's a culture where you can't really speak to the, your elders sort of thing. It's quite it's a bit, uh, you know, frowned upon. And he's like, how do I deal with this? This is a massive thing in the church because it goes against this biblical principle, right? Paul is saying here, look, to give according to your means. Some will have more. God will put you in a season where you've got a lot or a little. And he's saying, according to that, whatever is generous. And these are the principles that he gives for this collection. Now, if that's all we had to go on, that doesn't tell us a lot about the biblical reason for giving, does it? There's just a, a couple of blank basic principles. But fortunately, we have this second letter to this same church in Corinth that he sends just before he's about to arrive. He sends this first letter and he addresses this collection. But just before he's about to get there, he sends another letter in the, in the book of 2 Corinthians where he goes into more detail about it. And we'll pick up there in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 5, he says this, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking the part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. There's a famine going on in Jerusalem and Paul is at this church in Macedonia as he's making his way down to Greece and Corinth. And as he takes up this collection there, something incredible happens. He says there's this overflow of generosity. But the crazy thing about it is that in sentence 2 it says they were in a severe test of affliction. That is, Christians in Macedonia at that time were being beaten, were having their properties vandalized because they followed Jesus. Paul knows it personally. He was chased out of most of that region 
one city after another because he was preaching Jesus. And now the church that he's planted is facing the same thing. They're being threatened. Their properties are being confiscated. And yet, they give. If anyone had an excuse to say, not right now, it would be the Macedonian church. And yet, he says that they overflowed with generosity. But more than that, I mean, look what else is there. The other thing that's extraordinary about it is that they were poor themselves. They didn't have much money. They weren't rich and just giving out of their kind of leftovers. They were giving to others, though they themselves were poor. Now, who knows why they were poor? It may have been because of the persecution. It may have been that they were rich and became poor. That's certainly been the experience of many Christians in northern Iraq who lived reasonably prosperous lives. And when ISIS moved through their areas, they lost everything. Maybe that's what's happened to them. Maybe it was a poor church to start with. Whatever way, Paul says they were poor and yet they give. I mean, imagine the pressure on them to not be generous. You are under pressure from affliction, uh, from persecution. You are under pressure from poverty. You're going to have to explain to your kids, look, we're giving more stuff away when the kids are like, do we even have enough to eat for the next week? And yet they give. But it's true that someone who is in poverty and difficulty could still give because they were just being pressed upon. Probably the most extraordinary thing about this giving is not that they were or persecuted but look at what it says there in in sentences 4 and 5 it says for they gave according to their means and beyond their means of their own accord being asked earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints Paul is saying that he almost had to hold them back he wasn't compelling them or saying you have to he was almost saying to them look are you sure you can actually give this much like you need to think about your own means remember that principle I said back in the first letter about you know as you may prosper this is almost kind of reckless giving. And they're doing this voluntarily and exuberantly. They cannot wait to meet the needs of their brothers and sisters in the church in Jerusalem. But more than that, it's not just compulsory. They're not just begrudgingly doing this. It says, out of the abundance of their joy and extreme poverty, overflowed a wealth of generosity. So they have this abundant joy, not a little bit of joy. Not like a, a kind of like, a, I guess we'll get the joy later kind of joy. But out of this overflow of joy, they're like, they cannot wait to give. I mean, look how over the top this whole scenario is. It's severe persecution, extreme poverty, abundant joy, and a wealth of generosity. That is a seemingly impossible number of factors. To have all those things together is an incredible thing, isn't it? That is a unique giving. How on earth does that happen? Well, Paul doesn't leave it a mystery. He explains exactly what was going on. In 1 Corinthians 8, 7-8, he writes this, But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. So Paul's saying, look, I'm not saying this to compel you. I'm just saying, look, this is what happened in Macedonia. And may it encourage you to experience that same kind of grace. And he goes on to say why. In 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Paul is saying that when you understand the gospel, this kind of giving becomes pretty unextraordinary. It actually becomes logical. That if you really understand what the gospel means, who Jesus is and what he did, 
giving in the way that this Macedonian church did isn't really that strange. In fact, it's kind of logical. See, he's not saying here that Jesus was like some wealthy philanthropist who came and shared money with everyone. He's kind of a, a metaphor, a spiritual metaphor of what Jesus did. He says, though he was rich, he became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. He explains it a little bit clearer in two, earlier in the letter in 2 Corinthians in 5.21 when he says, He made him, so as in God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might be the righteousness of God. That Jesus was spiritually rich. He knew no sin. You have never known a person like that. You've never known anyone as good as they are to walk on this earth who can honestly claim that they were without sin. Who never refused to love. He had no debts to pay. He was the eternal righteous son with a wealth of righteousness. He always loved what was good. He always despised what is evil. He always worked for the good and joy of those around him. And we haven't. We've sinned, rejected God, loved and delighted in what is evil rather than what's good. And yet his righteousness has become ours through the cross. We had a debt to pay and it was death to face the anger of God, the righteous anger of God. And yet Jesus, who had no sin, was treated as a sinner on our behalf. This is what Paul's talking about when he's saying Jesus was rich and became poor for our sake. He was treated as though he had a debt to pay even though he had none. And we instead are treated as righteous. God relates to you like a righteous child who has never done any wrong. He's adopted you in completely if you know Jesus and follow him. And Paul is saying this grace is what transforms us and transforms our understanding of our stuff to make us generous. This is what the joy of generosity is because it was God's delight and God's joy in a self-giving act to pour out the blood of Jesus on our behalf. See, generosity for the Christian is not about paying God back. And it's not even about the almost more noble-sounding notion of, of just thanking God for what he's done. Neither of those, Paul says, are motivations for generosity. The Christian motivation for generosity is that, look, all our stuff is God's, and generosity is an act of worship, and when I'm generous, I get to enjoy what God himself enjoys, the creator of the universe enjoys. You can think about it like this. I, like, when I was in primary school... Maybe you did the same at your primary school, but you know, I went to a public school and they're always trying to grab for cash. And so every time Mother's Day or Father's Day came around, they'd run a stall and there'd just be tables of crappy stuff, just rubbish goods, right? They were made by whoever, some kindergartner or whatever. And, um, and the idea was you'd come to school and you'd buy a Mother's Day gift or a Father's Day gift to take home. Now, being in like kindy or year one myself, I remember my mom would give me like 10 bucks to go and buy a gift to give to her. Now... If she was being like smart, she would have taken that $10 and done anything with it. Flushed it down the toilet. It probably wouldn't have gone to better use, right? But she gave, it, she gave it to me so that on Mother's Day, I, who had no income, would be able to give her a gift, right? It wasn't because she needed anything. It wasn't because I was actually really giving anything to her that she didn't already have. But it was a relational act, right? And that's the same with God. Anything you have... Your life, your giftings, your abilities, your earning capacity, or your actual income or capital, whatever you have, none of it really belongs to you. If you're honest, you didn't decide when you were going to be born 
or in what economic circumstances you'll be born or that you'd be born able-bodied or with the kind of abilities to earn money. All of that was God's doing. Everything you have is His. He doesn't, ask, he doesn't call you to be generous so that you might pay Him back. What do we have that's not already His? It was like the same situation with my mom giving me the 10 bucks. It was already hers. It was a relational act. God calls us to enjoy what He enjoys and gives us the opportunity as we steward our things for His glory and honor. This is the joy that He's inviting us into when it comes to generosity. And that's what Paul goes into in chapter 9. Look at what he says in, in sentences 6 to 11. He says this, The point is this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is, he is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. It says God loves a cheerful, a joyful giver. He doesn't want duty. He doesn't want kind of outward obedience and inward kind of resentment. God rejoices in a joyful giver because that's the exact same manner in which he gives. And this is what grace produces, joy in generosity. Once you have received, once you've been the recipient of generosity, it makes you want to be generous too. So you've seen and experienced this grace and this joy in this church community. I personally, and our family has. In the first year of City Light, when we were working part-time and struggling to pay, it was like 320 bucks for rent, which now even seems mental, living over a chicken shop and whatnot. But time after time, we received timely gifts from people in this church who knew we weren't going to make rent for that week. More than that, we've been in missional communities where needs have come up and people not under compulsion or because they have to or because they want to be seen entirely anonymously have met the needs of other people just randomly and generously. I mean, even as a church, as a whole church, we gave away nearly $40,000 last year to help vulnerable people. That's an incredible thing. This is a generous church. And that's God's design for, the, for grace, that it should be at work in His church community, that it should overflow in generosity, that it should overflow in this giving away. See, when you think of money, do you think... How much do I need to sacrifice? Because if so, that's not the question that 2 Corinthians would be asking. That's not what Paul would be asking. The question isn't, how much do I sacrifice? How much do I leave aside? The question is, how much do I want to reap? What do I want to see happen? That's what the real question is. You see the difference? It's not what do I need to give up. It's what do I want to get that's going to result from real generosity. A church where people are reaching the lost and loving them. A church where people are being built up and transformed by the gospel. A church that's holding on to the gospel and passing it on to the next generation. A church that's being generous to the needy and meeting people's needs for the glory of God. A church where money is going to places where the gospel is going to reach people who have never heard of the grace of Jesus before. To further the kingdom of God. 
William Wilberforce was a Christian man who was instrumental in the abolition of slavery. But he didn't see just his political influence as kind of a... He's like, I've done my bit. That's my contribution. I ended slavery. You know, like, guilty, right? But he didn't see that as a way of, of kind of getting himself off the hook with finances. This is what he said. By careful management, I should be able to give at least one quarter of my income away to the poor. He wrote that riches were in themselves acceptable but from the infirmity of our nature, highly dangerous possessions. And we had to value them chiefly, not as instruments of luxury or splendor, but as affording the means of honoring our Heavenly Father and lessening the miseries of mankind. His thought, having been transformed by the gospel, was how do I do maximum good? How do I reap maximum good to honor God, to rejoice in that, and to see as many people impacted by the gospel as I can before I die? How do I do maximum good? God has given us money that we might experience the joy of generosity that he himself does. And at the heart of the gospel is this generous self-giving act, the pouring out of the blood of Jesus on our behalf. And it says in Hebrews 12 that he did it for the joy set before him. But at this point, you might be feeling bad. There's no easier topic to make people feel bad than, when, than to talk on generosity, Right? Who here could honestly say, I'm just, I'm as generous as I possibly could be. In fact, I'm embarrassed. I need to wind it back a little bit, right? There's no one who's in that zone. And you might even be thinking at this point, look, I've tried, but I'm selfish to the core. I just, I like new things. I like shiny things. I want more of them. It's my thing. And if that's the case, be encouraged. Because the, the passage here, if you look at it in context, it's saying that it's not about you. You might have heard that phrase, God loves a cheerful giver, and it's just doubling down on your guilt again and again. But you need to read the verses either side of it. <clears throat> Look at what he says in, the, in 2 Corinthians 9 8. Paul says, God is able to make grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you, just to cover all the bases, you may abound in every good work. <clears throat> More than that, it goes on. In 11, he says, you'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. He says, we can no more make ourselves generous than we can raise ourselves from the dead. That's the truth of the gospel. In fact, what he started with at the beginning of 1 Corinthians was the fact that you, a sinner who hated God, could not have repented if God had not intervened and sent his spirit into your heart to change how you saw God and yourself so that you might turn and find forgiveness in him. It wouldn't have happened. And he says, that's how you began as a Christian, and that's how you continue. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you want to be generous, you know what? It's not going to be you. If you have ever been genuinely generous, that, that act has originated with God. It says he is able to do it. And the idea here is that if he can do the greater, he can do the lesser. That's a principle that we understand generally. If you can do something that's more difficult, the less difficult kind of follows. Think about it like this. If you've ever seen one of those strongman competitions, which I'm sure we all have, um, but anyway, <clears throat> if you've ever seen those strongman competitions where it's like it's generally trying to work out who is the strongest man on earth, and oftentimes the contestants are, you'd expect them to be kind of a, a bodybuilding type, like quite ripped, but they're often not. They look like world champions of eating pies, but they are incredibly strong men, right? And the challenge that they'll do will be things like there'll be a relay where part of it is lifting like 
you know, a truck tire and then whatever else. They'll pull like a 747 along a tarmac. Uh, they'll be lifting kind of like gigantic stones, like all this kind of stuff to demonstrate who is actually genuinely the strongest. It would be odd to go to a competition like that, to see all of that go down, and then to say to one of the contestants, true, but I bet I could beat you in an arm wrestle. Now, they might, I, mean, I don't know the physics. They might actually be genuinely so large that they couldn't like, get the angles or something like that. It might be something weird like that. But generally, you would, you would understand the principle that if you can pull a 747 and you can't, it's probably going to beat you in an arm wrestle. If you can do the greater, you can do the lesser. If God can create worlds just by speaking, if he could send Jesus as a man to die for your sin, it follows that he can make you generous. It, it wouldn't be logical to say, yeah, I, I believe those things. I believe Genesis 1, God created heaven and earth, but generous is a bridge too far for him. It doesn't follow. And that's why Paul says he is able to do it. God can do anything. And if you, are, if you actually follow Christ, it's because God has been at work in you. And if he calls you to this, you'll be sufficient for that also. And so as we return to the principles in 1 Corinthians 16, we see them in a new light. So looking at what he said there, he was saying, look, you give regularly. Because the act of giving regularly is a commitment to joy in Jesus. To give regularly is to say, look, I believe that this isn't like some kind of compulsion or something I have to do. It's something that I want to do. Kind of sporadic giving is usually under compulsion. It's either under compulsion of the vibe. You get a whole bunch of people really psyched up and they give away heaps of cash at one moment and then never again. Or you make a whole bunch of people feel really guilty and they give just to get the guilt away from them. Like when you're walking down the street and you see people who've got you know, pamphlets or handing out something and you pretend you're on your phone or whatever it is just to avoid it, right? Because you, you don't want to be guilted into it. But giving regularly shows that it's not under compulsion, it's under a motivation, a gospel motivation from joy. When we look at this principle to give out of our first fruits, it's because we want to be generous. We don't want to give the scabby leftovers, but to think, what is the best? More than that, to give according to your means, to give responsibly, to think carefully about things, not impulsively, or not the kind of rich dad giving where you just give a whole bunch away, not thinking about the consequences because you know someone else is going to spring for it later for you anyway. But to think, no, what has God put me in charge of to steward well that I might be generous? See, the gospel transforms how we understand the stuff that we have. It's not ours. God has given it to us so that it might be an act of worship to enjoy him and to enjoy what the creator of the universe enjoys. And so as we kind of land on this, and as we think about our generosity as applied here as a church at City Light, there are two ways that we mentioned even a few weeks ago as we gathered as a church that we might give. And the first one is this. In the, in the money that we seek to give away, we support a bunch of organizations, Asylum Seeker Center in Newtown, Diamond Pregnancy Support, Open Doors, and the Edwards, our link missionaries over in Italy. And it's been a massive thing that the, the giving towards them has doubled since the time that we gathered here on August 2 to pray about and consider how we might give away. So that's been a massive thing of grace at work in this church. But the other one is giving to the, to the mission of this church at City Light and to our financial operational costs. And the issue at the moment is that we are under budget. So that means that starting this month, we'll make cuts. And Jacob and Cam, who work here, volunteered willingly to lose a day a week each in order to make up for some of the losses there. 
Uh, Gavin and I prayed about it with our families, and we didn't want them to do that on, on their own. So we're going to share that burden together. Now, I have to be careful in saying this. We need to say this because as a church, you need to know what's happening, and we need to be transparent about things always. But the risk in saying this is that people here might give out of compulsion. It might be that you love some of the leaders here and you feel bad for them, whatever it is. And I'd urge you to just hold back, to not give out of compulsion. If we've just read scriptures saying, do not give out of compulsion, that God loves a cheerful giver, we need to be biblical about giving. But the reason I say it is, for the sake of transparency, we need to know what's happening and we're going to cut things in October. And if giving doesn't increase after that, we'll make further cuts in November. And the shame about that is not about the staff having to go part-time. We've done it before. It's our joy to serve this church, and we do it because we believe in this church. It is not under compulsion. There's no reason to stress about that. The thing about it is that we believe that the way the church is set up and configured is that leaders would equip and empower and release the saints for works of service. We're set up well to reach people and to reach the lost, to build up the church and to mature people. And we've got a great setup for the remainder of this year and for next year. But if we have to pull back on that, it's going to mean pulling back on the mission of God there. And it may be the case that that's God's plan, but our hope and prayer is that grace may abound in generosity to meet those needs as it has every time at City Life. And so we'd urge you as we meet in small groups over this week to pray and to consider over that and to think about it biblically. It may be the case that you are not in a position to give beyond your means. And the Bible would say, don't. That's there. It's in the text. Paul says, as you may prosper, not out of guilt. But it may be as you pray about things, you might be like, look, I've been meaning to it for a while. I just haven't got my head around it or whatever it is. Or as you pray, you might realize, look, God is calling me to generosity here and I have an opportunity to do it. Whatever it is, we don't stress about things. We don't want to be phased about things. We trust God completely. And our concern here is more about the heart than the end result. The main thing is that as we look at this text is that as we understand the gospel as an act of generosity, God is calling us to worship through generosity and for it to be joyful. It would be a waste if we were to give out a compulsion. The, the 18th century preacher Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, Let us learn then from the analogy of nature the great lesson that to get we must give, that to accumulate we must scatter, that to make ourselves happy, we must make others happy. May all our giving and our efforts at City Light always be for the joy of others to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you that you are a generous God, that you are not a stingy God, that you do not hold back, that you who did not hold back even his dear son for us, will you not also give us all things? And Father, we pray that we would trust you in this. We would trust your gospel, your grace, and the work of your spirit in the life of this church to meet needs. And Father, we pray that as as we do this, that you would make us generous people as individuals and as a church. That the way that we use all of life, from our time to our finances, would be generously. That we do it in the very manner in which you have loved us through Christ. And Father, we pray that you would do this not for our glory, but for yours. Father, we pray this. For the sake of your holy name. Amen.